0: From InPierre News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. (music) I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elvin on the Week in Politics. President Biden at the Camp David Summit with the leaders of South Korea and Japan. And later...
1: This is my handsome boy, and his name is Rio, and I say he's smart, smart and stubborn. She's my
0: best friend. Annie Vance is a psychotherapist who lost her home on Maui. She now gives counseling to others who've suffered, along with Rio, her therapy dog. And later, a couple more nations with moon missions, and a new documentary tells the story of Ted Hall, a 19-year-old physicist who slipped atomic secrets to the USSR, but was never charged. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, August 19, 2023.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Hurricane Hillary is moving closer to Mexico's Baja California Peninsula and to the Southern California coast. NPR's Nathan Rott reports while the storm is expected to weaken, its rainfall could lead to life-threatening flooding, with those in its path being warned to make preparations now
3: officials have declared flood watches from mexico nearly to california's central coast with torrential rains expected to impact the regions through the weekend daniel swain a climate scientist at the university of california los angeles says some inland desert areas could see upward of five to ten inches of rain
4: so we're talking the potential for multiple years worth of precipitation in just two days in some parts of the deserts of southeastern California, southern Nevada, and far western Arizona.
3: Southern California is under its first ever tropical storm watch as Hillary approaches. Nathan Rott, NPR News.
2: Firefighters are trying to save the Canadian city of Yellowknife, where wildfire is closing in and most of the city's 20,000 residents have evacuated. Farther south, wildfires are threatening British Columbia. Dan Karpinchuk reports a province-wide state of emergency is in effect.
3: Premier David Eby
5: declared the state of emergency after fast-spreading wildfires led to thousands of new evacuation orders and alerts across the province.
0: We are facing the worst wildfire season in our province's history.
5: Eby says there has been a rapid deterioration of the situation, with evacuation orders going from about 4,500 homes to 15,000 in just a single hour. As fires grew at an alarming pace, police and emergency crews had to re-enter some evacuation zones to pull people from their homes. And with lightning in the forecast, officials are expecting more trouble heading into the weekend. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto.
2: China's military-launched naval and air force drills around the island of Taiwan today. Beijing says the drills were a warning for anyone supporting Taiwan's independence. NPR's Emily Fang reports the announcement came just hours after Taiwan's vice president traveled through the U.S. and
6: gave speeches there. China's Eastern Theater Command said it was launching the drills this morning, a response it said for separatist forces, quote, colluding with foreign powers. They're referring to Taiwan's Vice President William Lai. Lai is running for president this year and just returned Friday night from a trip to Paraguay and the US. In China, strongly objected to his US stop. On Saturday, Taiwan's military reported that 42 Chinese vessels and aircraft were flying around the island, 26 of which crossed an informal halfway point in the Strait of Water between China and Taiwan, a number higher than the usual handful. So far, however, these Chinese drills are much smaller than previous ones mounted in the last year. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. This is NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The National Weather Service confirms that those snapped and uprooted trees in four Massachusetts communities and part of Rhode Island were caused by tornadoes that touched down yesterday morning. WBUR's Paul Kinerny reports.
3: The strongest tornado in Massachusetts hit Weymouth with 100 to 110 mile-per-hour winds. A second hit the ground in North Attleboro and jumped to Mansfield. The weakest twister hit Stoughton. Weather Service meteorologist Bryce Williams says four tornadoes in one day is not a common situation, but he says context matters.
8: This year seems especially anomalous just because we're going from an unusually quiet year tornado-wise to an unusually active year. So it, it has been more active than usual, but not unheard of.
3: Williams says this area typically gets two to three tornadoes a year. The Rhode Island tornado was so strong, it lifted a car 10 feet into the air on Route 295 and dropped it back onto the highway. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paul Kinnerny.
7: Rhode Island firefighters have been battling a major fire on Block Island this morning. WJAR Television reports firefighters from around the state had to take a ferry to the island overnight after fire ripped through the Harborside Inn. The fire broke out around midnight and was contained to one building. Just before college students start moving back, the Alston-Brighton neighborhood is celebrating today. Harvard Ave and Brighton Ave will be closed to traffic so people can gather for music, games, and food. This is the first year the neighborhood's been included in the mayor's Open Streets program. People in Charlestown will hear the guns of the USS Constitution firing at noon today. The seven-gun salute will commemorate Old Ironside's battle with the British frigate. The victory by the overmatched Constitution was considered a stunning win during the War of 1812. It's 64 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, highs in the mid-70s, lows in the low 60s overnight, and tomorrow you can expect sunny skies with highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us today. The indictments keep coming. A grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, charged former President Donald Trump and 18 of his associates with the scheme to overturn the lawful results of the 2020 election in that state. Donald Trump now faces 91 criminal indictments in state and federal courts as he runs for president in 2024. Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. 98 pages in this George indictment. Um, several other names stand out. Rudy Giuliani and the former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Donald Trump's lawyers say the charges are so extensive. They want the trial to be delayed until 2016. Um, uh, Forgive me, 2026. Isn't it hard for a court to avoid granting some kind of delay to a defendant whose lawyers say, look, this is the time we just need to mount the lawful defense to which any and every client's entitled?
9: The Justice Department would like to proceed on the January 6th case. That's the one built around the attempt to overturn the election in the first week of the new year, 2024. Now, in Georgia, Fonnie Willis, the state prosecutor, has set a tentative trial date in March of 2024. And you can argue, as Trump's lawyers surely will, that those are unrealistically close. But They are a lot closer to reality than the suggestion just mentioned from Trump's lawyers to put this all off for years, for two and a half years until April of 2026. Now that's two and a half, that's just two and a half years. It just boggles the mind to think that we would be waiting through all that period of time for this to be resolved. So there will be negotiations between the two sides. Many legal briefs will be filed before this is resolved.
0: Fulton County Sheriff's Office is investigating threats made on far-right websites against the grand jurors. And as NPR reported, the full names, ages, and addresses of some of the grand jurors also appeared on these sites. That sounds ominous. It does indeed. And it
9: augurs a season of harassment and possibly worse. Uh, The targets may be jurors, or they may be witnesses, or they may be others involved in the administration of criminal justice. Uh, This is a fundamental insult to the legal system and a threat that officials take very seriously. The FBI is now involved in investigating uh, these postings on social media. So if individuals responsible can be identified, uh, they are likely to find the courts tend to treat this sort of interference
0: with great severity. Um, Two things are going on now. Well, I, I should mention, by yeah. the way, that, that I
9: should mention that Trump actually spoke about all of this uh, on the Fox Business Network. And uh, here's a little bit of what he said.
5: They want to silence you. And they mean silence. They are uh, – I think they're sick people. I think they are people that uh, have no idea how the world works and they have no idea the anger they cause.
9: That that, that That's Trump's perspective on uh, the government trying to protect grand jurors and witnesses. Now, all of this is something we've seen before. Trump creating a sophisticated narrative to serve as an alternative to the criminal charges, the narrative that his prosecutors are outlining. Um, That undermines the office of the attorney general. It It undermines the office of the courts themselves. And he's trying to convince his own followers that he's not the only victim, but that they, too, are in the crosshairs of a government out of control.
0: President Biden is hosting the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David. Uh, First time he's invited foreign leaders there.
9: Yes. The thing about Camp David is that we're elevating this relationship and creating a new level of tripartite relationship with these allies. It's also great domestic politics for them in their home countries, and it elevates Joe Biden's presidency to use this setting and this language for an agreement he can then call the Camp David Principles, recalling the Camp David Accords, the Middle East peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. That was the
0: highlight of Jimmy Carter's presidency all those years ago. Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. And we now turn to uh, the regional view of what the Camp David Summit looks like. Leaders of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan ended an unprecedented three-way meeting yesterday there. The U.S. and its allies described their partnership as a new force in the region. And Paris Anthony Kuhn is in Seoul. Anthony, thanks for being with us.
5: Nice to join you, Scott.
0: And what has reaction been there to the summit?
5: The main reaction in Asia seems to be that the summit is unprecedented, but it's also largely symbolic. And the symbolism the three countries want to convey is that they are united. And countries such as North Korea, China, and Russia will not be able to exploit the differences between them. Now, one of the outcomes is what the US is calling a commitment to consult among the three nations about potential threats. So in the event of, for example, a North Korean nuclear test or a disruption to supply chains, the three will consult and coordinate their responses. There will also be annual three-way leadership summits and military drills. Uh, I think everyone is clear that this is not a three-way alliance under discussion. It's still two bilateral alliances. Mm -hmm between the U.S. and Japan and between the U.S. and Korea, and that's because there is still not enough trust between Japan and Korea to support a bilateral alliance with each other or a three-way alliance with the U.S.
0: With that lack of trust, how did the summit come about?
5: Well, the mistrust is left over from Japan's colonial occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945, During World War II, for example, Japan's military forced Korean and other women into sexual slavery. Thousands of Koreans were conscripted as forced laborers. And South Korea's President Yoon Sung-yeol essentially said that if Japan is not going to compensate these forced laborers, then South Korea will. Japan insisted laid the matter to rest when the two countries normalized relations in the 1960s, but this remains a major sticking point between the two, and most South Koreans want Japan, not South Korea, to compensate Koreans. Uh, despite this, the two countries held their first summit meetings in 12 years in March, and Washington, which had been nudging them to do it, is delighted.
0: The deals, Richard Camp David, are supposed to survive any, any subsequent changes in political administrations, and public opinion that occur in democracies, can they really do that?
5: (laughs) Anything could happen, but the Biden administration is trying to lock in the progress that's been made by institutionalizing it. And here's how National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan put it to reporters.
10: Every leader's gonna have to make decisions, but the architecture, the framework, the structure that's being put in place now, uh, from our perspective, has a, a tailwind behind it that will propel it forward and be very difficult to knock off course.
5: Now, of course, there is concern in Japan and South Korea about another Trump administration or someone like him who has questioned the value of alliances. And it's also rare that you get this alignment of leaders in Japan and South Korea that are so friendly to each other.
0: Anthony, how might this agreement affect ties among North Korea, China and Russia?
5: Yes, well, the Camp David summit documents call out Russia over its war on Ukraine, North Korea for its nuclear weapons, and China for its activities around Taiwan and the South China Sea. Pyongyang, Beijing, and Moscow are, of course, not happy about the summit. They're tightening their cooperation. The U.S. claims that North Korea is already supplying Russia with arms for use in Ukraine. Russia and China, meanwhile, occasionally stage joint military drills around South Korea and Japan, probing the Allies' defenses so the summit could strengthen these rival blocks.
0: And pairs Anthony Kuhn in Seoul, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Well, park names aren't what they used to be, and I mean that, to use an overworked word of our times, literally. Oracle Park in San Francisco used to be Pac-Bell after it was SBC, after it was at and Park. It was Cellular Field in Chicago, which some of us might think of as The new Comiskey Park is now Guaranteed Rate Field. Does anyone ever say, gosh, they got great dogs at Guaranteed Rate Field? T-Mobile Park in Seattle is the new name for Safeco Field. Progressive Field in Cleveland has nothing to do with Bernie Sanders. It's the name of an insurance company on the stadium that used to be Jacobs Field. The Houston Astros play in Minute Maid Park. It was Enron Field when the park opened in 2000, but in 2001... The oil company went bankrupt in a sensational accounting scandal. The Astros had to sue to get the Enron name off of their ballpark, but won their division, had a better year than Enron. Fans like me might be pointlessly sentimental when it comes to stadium names, but they used to be personal, not corporate. They were named after people, sometimes the owners, Comiskey and Wrigley in Chicago, Crosley in Cincinnati and Griffith in Washington, D.C., Ebbets Field in Brooklyn was named for a man who used to be a ticket taker but would come to own the Dodgers. Some other names came from stadiums' locations. Fenway, a neighborhood in Boston, or Candlestick for a tip of land that juts into San Francisco Bay. Of course, what name invokes more fame and grandeur than Yankee Stadium? The change came when teams realized they could sell companies the rights to put their corporate monikers on their ballparks and turn the whole thing into a billboard. But naming rights may not be as extravagant an expenditure as you think. It cost J.P. Morgan Chase and company $3.3 million a year to put their bank name on the Phoenix ballpark. It cost Petco $2.7 million a year to put their pet supply company name on San Diego's ballpark. And the guaranteed rate mortgage company pays just over $2 million a year to have their name on the stadium where the White Sox play. I don't want to characterize any of those fees as chump change, but the average salary of Major League ballplayers today is higher than any of those rates, nearly $5 million a year. Instead of seeing stadium names as one more chance to sell advertising, teams could salute players and fans by naming their parks after one of their own departed greats. There should be a Jackie Robinson park, a Roberto Clemente field, and one day perhaps... Shohei Otani Stadium. They're the names that made games worth watching. You're listening to NPR News.
7: Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Saturday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18 and coming up in about five minutes, you'll get the latest on lunar missions. India and Russia are both involved in separate attempts to land on the moon next week. You'll get that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 65 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-70s. Lows overnight, dropping to the low 60s. A sunny Sunday is in store tomorrow with highs in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
6: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive oceanstatejoblot.com.
2: I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Forecasters are warning of dangerous, possibly catastrophic flooding, saying it's likely in Southern California starting tomorrow, with years' worth of rain possibly falling within days on desert areas of the Southwest. Hurricane Hillary is threatening Mexico's Baja California Peninsula today. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says Lahaina will rise again as crews make slow progress with the help of cadaver dogs covering the burn area from last week's wildfire. Maui's death toll has risen to 114 people and is expected to grow. China today launched military drills around Taiwan in what it's calling a serious warning to those supporting Taiwan's independence. Its vice president just visited the U.S. He is seen as a frontrunner in Taiwan's presidential elections. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Ten law enforcement officers in the Bay Area have been indicted by the U.S. Attorney on charges of corruption and violating civil rights. It's the result of a more than two years-long FBI investigation into alleged wrongdoing and abusive policing in two Bay Area suburbs, and Pierre Sandhya Dirks has been following the story and joins us. We uh, will note that uh, there'll be reference to racist language allegedly used by some of these officers. Sandia, thanks so much for being with us.
12: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: And tell us, please, what's in these charges.
12: So it all started with a tip that police officers in this town, Antioch, California, which is about 45 minutes north of Oakland, were allegedly cheating on college classes in order to pass the classes and be eligible for raises. Allegedly, some officers in the neighboring town of Pittsburgh were also cheating. But the charges go much further. Some officers are accused of a conspiracy to sell drugs, anabolic steroids to be exact. Another is accused of obstructing an FBI murder investigation and destroying evidence. And then three Antioch police officers have been explicitly accused of civil rights violations.
0: What violations specifically?
12: So this indictment is 29 pages long, and it, you know, alleges a deeply disturbing pattern of illegal uses of force, and that these officers then bragged about that to each other. Here's Ismail Ramsey, the U.S. Attorney for Northern California.
9: The defendants also allegedly shared photos of their victims' injuries and even collected as mementos spent ammunition from their attacks on the people of Antioch.
12: Allegedly, one officer would sick his police dog on people, and every time his police dog would violently bite someone, he would send a text message counting the number of bites he was racking up, all the way up to 28 dog bites. Another officer is accused of shooting people with what's known as a 40 millimeter launcher weapon which fires what police call less than lethal ammunition. It can still severely hurt people. And that same officer is accused of collecting the spent munitions and creating what the indictment calls a trophy flag out of them. And then they allegedly lied about it. The indictment accuses them of covering up illegal uses of force in police reports by saying it was all necessary and justifiable. of the officers have pleaded not guilty to all of these charges
0: and who Sandy are these officers accused of targeting
12: well during the fbi investigation in fact this past spring a trove of racist and sexist messages was released to the press and the public some of them are even referenced as evidence in the indictment but it goes beyond just the officers charged in total almost half of the department was on the text chain and either was actively texting or said nothing to stop it In these texts, police officers call Black people guerrillas and the N-word. They admit to violating civil rights. They talk about manufacturing confessions, and they talk about targeting Black people for violence. So race is a huge part of what's happening here, even though it's not necessarily front and center in the indictments. Interestingly, the charges of cheating on college courses, wire fraud, carry 20 years, twice as much time as the alleged civil rights abuses.
0: Sandy, what kind of reaction have you heard so far in the community?
12: I spoke with Shagufa Khan, a young activist who grew up in Antioch. She was crudely mentioned by name in a racist and sexist text. She says a lot of people feel vindicated by seeing all of this out there.
11: We've been fighting for years
13: to hold these Antioch police officers accountable for their actions and what they've done to community members.
12: But she says it's about more than just the officers who are charged. It's about the entire police department and how for a long time it has made residents, especially residents of color, unsafe. As far as these indictments, some of the charged officers have already been fired. Some are suspended. It's a little murky. But next, this case will head to trial unless someone makes a deal.
0: And Parasondia Dirks, thanks so much.
12: Thanks, Scott.
0: Russia and India... Will both attempt to land robotic probes on the surface of the moon next week. Attempt is, of course, the key word. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on the missions and what makes nailing a lunar, lunar landing so difficult.
14: Russia and India's missions are scheduled to land within just days of each other. Brett Denevi is a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. She says they're also landing quite near each other on the lunar surface.
11: They're heading really close together. (laughs) They're just a few hundred kilometers apart. Um, They'll both be not quite at the moon's south pole, but in the general polar region.
14: It's the coolest place to land on the moon right now. Literally, craters near the south pole are in permanent shadow.
11: Those areas never see sunlight, and thus they're just extremely cold.
14: Which means they could have frozen water. Any nation that gets a hold of that precious H2O could use it for all sorts of things.
11: If you break it apart, you can make rocket fuel or breathable air for future astronauts on the surface.
14: Many countries would like to send astronauts to the moon. In recent years, it's become seen as the first destination on the road to exploring other parts of the solar system, namely Mars. Russia launched its probe on August 11th, and it's a return of sorts. The nation made more than a dozen trips in Soviet times. Anatoly Zak is publisher of RussianSpaceWeb.com and an expert on Russian and Soviet spacecraft. The last such mission took place in 1976. He says this new mission is actually based off the old Soviet design. It's a kind of upgraded uh, 21st
15: century version of that uh, Soviet uh, spacecraft which landed on the moon in the 70s.
14: Zach says because it's a proven design, it should work. On the other hand, people who led the old missions nearly half a century ago have all retired. Bottom line, he's not sure whether they'll stick the landing. Probably there is a 50-50 chance that they will be successful. Lately, a lot of countries have not been successful private missions from Israel and Japan have failed to touch down gently on the lunar surface, that's because landing on the moon is tricky.
3: The moon is kind of a unique challenge because it has no atmosphere.
14: Jason Davis is with the Planetary Society, a nonprofit devoted to promoting space exploration.
3: So that means you can't use a parachute, uh, you know, like you would if you were on Mars or even coming back to Earth. You have to use your thrusters. And that means you're gonna have a lot of sophisticated calculations as it comes in for a landing uh, to fire these thrusters just right. There's not a lot of uh, margin for error.
14: The Indian Space Research Organization knows this all too well. In 2019, it tried to land on the moon, but when the engines on the lander performed in an unexpected way...
3: The spacecraft uh, did
14: not know where it was and crashed.
16: The communications, From the lander to ground station was lost.
10: The data is being analyzed.
14: Davis thinks that by analyzing that data, India should have learned a lot about what went wrong with its lander. That means this coming attempt is more likely to succeed, he says. Then again, anything can happen on the moon. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
0: Soccer in South America is a fierce fan culture. Fans of teams from Brazil, Chile, Peru are taking taunting to a whole new level. Their target is Argentina and the method, the peso. Might have heard Argentina just has a horrible inflation rate, just horrible, over 100%. So fans from other countries whose teams are playing in Argentina have taken to shredding Argentinian pesos during games, even burning them. Broadcast that on the Stadium Kiss cam. They might need to think twice now. The government of Argentina announced that those caught destroying currency in the country could face penalties of up to 30 days in prison. Ha, that's a red card. First responders on Maui continue to work long hours trying to recover and identify. Remains of more than 100 people Killed in the wildfire that incinerated much of the historic resort town of Lahaina. Survivors are still dealing with physical challenges, like where to live in the coming weeks and months. But the size of the emotional and psychological toll is coming into sharp review, and the need for mental health
17: support grows, as NPR's Eric Westervelt reports from Maui. The scale of the physical damage in the historic center of Lahaina is clear in its apocalyptic landscape of rubble, ash and debris. But the scale of the inner damage can be seen in the five-year-old girl that Maui's Chief Mental Health Administrator John Oliver saw the other day. The girl came in with her mother into this Lahaina Health Clinic clutching a green and purple plushy stuffed animal. She seemed withdrawn. And afraid.
9: I got down to her level and, you know, I asked her her name and how she was doing and, you know, uh, asked about her stuffed animal. And, and then she's, she just offered up and she said, I'm very sad. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, why are you sad? And she said, she said, I'm sad because I saw a lot of dead bodies.
17: Oliver told the girl how sorry he was and tried to reassure her saying, I want you to know that you're safe now.
9: She smiled, we continued to play for a little bit, and she said, you know, I really miss, I really miss my, my friend. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that also. At that point, the, the psychiatrist came in, and
17: you know, I talked briefly with the mom, and she shared that when she says she misses her friend, it's her best friend. That friend died in the fire. Counselors here describe these early days of disaster mental health treatment as a kind of triage, psychological first aid for anguish that runs the spectrum of symptoms from sadness and sleeplessness to exhaustion, depression, and breakdowns.
18: They've lost family. They've lost their pets. They've lost everything.
17: South Maui clinical social worker Debbie Scott says for some who had to flee the flames, the initial shock is now giving way to wrenching anxiety and anger as the depth of the trauma settles in.
18: There is a heaviness in the air that is is uh, we're, we're destroyed.
17: Scott paused her private practice to help counsel the displaced at a community center in South Maui that's been turned into a temporary shelter. Evacuees here late this week were offered the chance to move from shelter cots to much nicer accommodations in hotel rooms or apartments. But several didn't want to go, Scott says, including an older man. He felt safe in the shelter. Both of his hands were fully bandaged from serious burns. Scott went over to him.
18: I called him by his name and I said, listen, let's see about what we need to do to make sure that you feel safe enough to get on that bus.
17: Sometimes it's the little things. He wanted his flip-flops. Scott found them near the bathrooms and it helped.
18: It took some work, but I did get him on that bus and he was thankful to have his bags and he sure was thankful to have his flip-flops. He needed his slippers.
17: Compounding the grief here, hundreds are still listed as unaccounted for, and people can't identify their lost loved ones. Only a few remains have been ID'd so far, and some may never be found. Officials are trying to mobilize a fresh influx of mental health clinicians to help. To make that easier, the governor issued an emergency order temporarily waiving the state licensing requirement for counseling but the need and the hurt are enormous. And getting care, and in some cases medication, to the displaced scattered across the island is a mammoth task. Scott says in these early days of acute stress, it's really not about intensive therapy, it's more about listening and offering tools for comfort and care.
18: And whether that's breathing, whether that is progressive muscle relaxation, whether that is mindfulness and meditative practices, um, just sitting, stretching, whether that is just talking story making jokes
17: another tool to help people cope therapy animals
1: and this is my handsome boy and his name is rio and i say he's smart smart and stubborn he's my best friend
17: psychotherapist annie vance lost her home in lahaina she's now volunteering at shelters and counseling hotel employees affected by the fire with the help of her 9-year-old black lab therapy dog, Rio.
1: I've taken him to my sessions and people just love him. We get talking about the dog and then we get talking about how are you and what happened to you and it, it gives a nice entrance into the conversations that need to be had.
17: But who counsels the counselors who've had to flee a deadly wildfire and lost their home? Vance admits both she and Rio are pretty tired. And she and these other mental health professionals say survivors will be reckoning with their wounds for a long time. After Vance recently went to buy some much-needed clothes, Rio gave her a forlorn look.
1: I ran out of the house with the dress I had on and one other, and Rio got back into the car and he gave me this look like, Mom, I just want to go home, are we going to go home now? And I just looked at him and cried and I said, Rio, honey, I want to go home too, but We don't have a home anymore, but we'll make the best of what we've got.
17: And, she told Rio, we'll help each other get through this. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Maui.
0: You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. What's that old saying, those who can do? Those who can't teach eh, needs revision, thanks to Alan Winans. To his students in Bakersfield, California, he's a substitute teacher, but during the summer, Alan Winans is a pitcher for the minor league Gwinnett Stripers. Last week, the Atlanta Braves called him up to the bigs to face the New York Mets. He threw seven innings of shutout ball, nine strikeouts, a-plus performance.
4: Yeah, you know, to, to put it lightly, it was pretty cool. Definitely a good feeling to uh, get called up again, you know, uh, coming off the debut in Milwaukee a few weeks ago, riding that high, which, which was amazing, obviously. Yeah, getting a chance to do it against the Mets, the team that drafted me, was, was obviously pretty cool, and uh, to be able to execute was, was pretty satisfying, to say the least.
0: For Alan Winans, certainly not the Mets who drafted him but didn't hold on to him. Alan Winans is gracious about the team that let him go.
4: I don't know what, what went into the decision on on not protecting me. I thought I had a pretty good year. I mean, I know I had a pretty good year, but they went a different direction, and, and I'm really happy that they did. You know, getting over to the Braves was obviously a uh, perfect setup for, for where I was at in my career.
0: His seven innings of shutout ball in the major leagues also brought a gratifying response from some students he's taught and teachers
4: for whom he's subbed. Some of them have reached out, uh, some friends that I know that teach, some teachers that I've subbed for. Uh, have reached out the amount of gratitude that I have felt over the last few weeks since some change has been um, unbelievable like I wish not everybody can make it to the big leagues obviously but I wish everybody can feel that type of gratitude that I felt uh, at some point in their life it was truly truly amazing
0: Alan Winans is a starting pitcher with Gwinnett but back in Bakersfield He's brought out of the bullpen, if you please, to fill in wherever he's needed.
4: You need a PE guy, you need a math guy, you need an English guy. A little bit of a jack-of-all-trades, I guess you could say. Alan Winans knows his story has movie written all over it.
0: The sub who threw a shutout. But he thinks most of his teammates have their own stories.
4: I think there's a lot of guys that that you can write a movie about. A lot of people are making this into like a really, really cool story, which, because it is, right? I think that everybody making it to the big leagues and and the grind that we have to go through, the sacrifices we have to make for everybody across the board, if you get a chance to make it through that threshold, it's pretty special.
0: And does Alan Winans' star turn mean he won't return to the classroom after the season? Is this goodbye, Mr. Winans, for his students?
4: You know, my wife's a teacher. She just started up yesterday with students, and she asked me that same question. We'll have to see how the rest of the year plays out. I definitely have a big offseason ahead, uh, looking into uh, another big year next year, too. But not looking too far ahead at the same time. We have I have a game this week on Sunday that I'm starting. As of right now, I'm not too sure, but we'll see.
0: But students in Bakersfield still get your homework in. Mr. Winans can grade those papers while his team is at bat.
8: If I pitch, can
15: you catch, will you hold? the ball when you step to the plate when you swing and fall if you play you gotta know how it's done can you catch can you hold a hard one
0: I indiana mean, jones cracked a bullwhip and outsmarted the nazis all while pushing through a pretty big phobia
19: snakes why did it have to be snakes
0: And now scientists have named a new species of snake found in Peru after Harrison Ford, who played Indiana Jones. You can hear Ayesha's conversation with one of the scientists tomorrow on Weekend Edition. Just tell your smart speaker to play NPR, your member, station by name. This is NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The National Weather Service is confirming that three tornadoes touched down yesterday in Massachusetts and one touchdown in Rhode Island. In Massachusetts, the three tornadoes hit Weymouth, North Attleboro, Mansfield, and Stoughton. Massachusetts added more than 12,000 jobs last month. Revised numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show the state also gains jobs in June rather than losing some jobs, as first reported. In July, the state's unemployment rate dipped to a new record low, 2.5 percent. The city of Worcester is talking with the state about opening a welcoming center for migrants. The city manager says both short-term and long-term solutions are needed to meet the demand in Worcester. The state has two centers in Alston and Quincy, helping to handle the influx of migrants. The surge is putting pressure on the state's shelter system and support services. Last night in New York, the Red Sox beat the Yankees 8-3. They play again this afternoon. Tonight in preseason football, the Patriots take on the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field. It's 65 degrees in Boston with sunshine today, highs in the mid-70s, lows in the low-60s overnight, and a sunny day in store tomorrow, Sunday's
11: highs in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com.
20: Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait Wait.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at smartmouth.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity regardless of race, gender, or geography. kaufman.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. There's a love story at the center of the new documentary, A Compassionate Spy. Joan and Ted Hall, a couple who meet as University of Chicago students right after the Second World War, they share a love of poetry Mozart left his politics and soon a secret Ted tells Joan of something extraordinary, illegal, and possibly treasonous. When he was the youngest scientist on the atomic bomb project, Ted Hall gave secrets to the Soviet Union. I was quite concerned with the question of what the world would be like when the Second World War was finished.
19: You didn't think if I do this, I'm breaking the law and they might execute me? No.
3: (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) Ted Hall died in 1999. The film uses a clip from an interview with CNN in 1998. A Compassionate Spy is directed by Steve James, who's made previously praised films that include Hoop Dreams and Life Itself. Steve James joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us, Steve. Great to be here, Scott. Joan Hall died just a little over a month ago at the age of 94. She opened their lives to you, didn't she? Oh, my God. Yes, she certainly did.
21: You know, this is a story that she's lived with for many, many years. And I think she saw this as an opportunity to really tell Ted's story uh, the way they would want to have his story told, the both of them.
0: What did a 19-year-old student, Ted Hall, even one working at Los Alamos, have to give Soviet spies anyway? Ted's primary contribution to the spying was
21: after he had performed well in, in, in his very junior physicist capacity, he was promoted to work on the process by which the bomb really detonates and explodes, a very important part of the of the whole thing. And he was able to pass information about the implosion process, and then when the Soviets got that from Ted, they also got similar information about implosion from Klaus Fuchs. And that's when they knew that they really had genuine intelligence about the
0: bomb. Yeah, two sources, the old rule. There were guards all around Los Alamos. How, how did Ted Hol get the information out? <laughs> well,
21: he and Sabi, his friend and fellow spy in this regard, they worked up this way of conveying the information where they would take Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and use it to create their own sort of code language. They weren't professional spies. They didn't know anything about any of this and so they probably were going off of movies. And of course, their handler learns that they met in the middle of the street in Albuquerque where Ted was going to pass some direct information to Savi. And they said, you can't meet in the middle of the street like that. That's ridiculous. But, But they got away with it. I mean, I think there was a feeling at Los Alamos that that because they were in such a remote location, that things were much safer there and secure than they in fact were. And why did Ted Hall slip atomic secrets to the USSR? Well, you know, Ted wanted to work on this project, like virtually all the scientists who are at Los Alamos, and in part because, or major part, because there was this feeling that Germany was working on developing the bomb, and that no one wanted Germany to have this bomb first. Uh, Ted, being a Jew, um, also had, you know, deeply personal reasons to want to work on this as well. But once he got out there and realized the scope of what they were doing, and the fact, I think, that they were going to be successful, he started to think about, well, what's going to happen with this bomb in the post-war world? The United States is going to have this awful weapon to themselves, and he worried that the United States having this weapon to itself would be destabilizing,
0: especially if a right-wing government came to power in the United States. The FBI suspected, or more than suspected, something had been going on, and they questioned Ted Hall and Savvy Sachs in Chicago after the war. And you speculate, and Ted and Joan Hall more than speculate, that Ted's brother Ed might have been the reason they didn't proceed with the prosecution. How did that work out?
21: Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of <laughs> situation that if you made the Hollywood version of this movie, no one would believe it, which is that Ed, Ted's brother, who was 11 years older than him, was a brilliant engineer in the Air Force. And he was, he was instrumental in the development of the Air Force's rocket programming, the Atlas rocket, and including leading up to the development of the ICBM missile program. Um, he's in the Air Force Hall of Fame, you know, and there's been documentation that has emerged since we made the film even um, that has shown that that they were, in fact, quite reluctant to pursue this because of the potential embarrassment uh, of the fact that their chief rocket scientist brother was a spy. And if they could not convict him, that embarrassment would be profound and was just not worth pursuing
0: should explain the Halls moved to Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And uh, there was a 1997 book, Bombshell, by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunsel that reported their story. Let me put to you, Steve, a question that I kept asking myself and wondered if you would have addressed it to, to Ted Hall. If he had misgivings about helping to develop the atom bomb, why not just refuse to help develop that bomb rather than to give secrets about the bomb to a regime headed by Stalin, who ranks alongside Adolf Hitler in villainy.
21: I think the answer is is that the bomb was going to be developed with or without Ted Hall. I mean, Ted Hall was a junior physicist. It was well on its way to happening, regardless of what Ted decided to do. And he says himself that being a part of that project was exhilarating at a certain point, because. You know, it was probably in many ways the most significant scientific enterprise undertaken to that point in history. So I think for Ted to quit and not be a part of that wasn't going to change anything. The thing that he could have an impact on was his decision to try and basically even the playing field. I mean, the question I wanted to ask Ted that no one asked in those interviews, those archival interviews that we did, is to what degree did he feel responsible for the arms race by playing some role in helping the Soviet Union get the bomb? And let's be clear, the Soviet Union was going to get the bomb regardless of any spying. I mean, they had brilliant scientists. We would have had an arms race, but I would have loved to ask Ted to what degree he felt culpability in setting off an arms race whose politics are at such odds to his own.
0: Steve James Film, A Compassionate Spy, thank you so much for being with us.
21: Thanks for having me.
0: At the start of things, the elders say, the universe was hushed and still. The moon alone shone bright and round, and the star speckled dark of the sky. So begins Ancient Night. It's David Alvarez's twist on traditional stories from Mesoamerica, and the focus today of our series on children's books. Picture this. The Mexican illustrator came up with the idea for Ancient Night after a trip to Spain a decade ago. Para mí fue un
9: choque
22: cultural estar ahí, ver las ciudades, ver toda la cultura. It was a culture shock for me being there, seeing the cities and all their culture. After my visit, when I returned to Mexico, I had another culture shock, when I started noticing so many similarities between both places. That's when I saw the need for this project.
0: David Alvarez, speaking through an interpreter, says he wanted to know the history of Mexico and Central America before the Spanish conquest. So we started doing research.
22: Pues naturalmente, fue, fui encontrando mitos. That was how I naturally came across many myths. And there was one particular book called El Conejo en la Cara de la Luna from a prominent Mexican historian named Alfredo Lopez Austin.
0: The Rabbit in the Face of the Moon. People in Mesoamerica believe different stories about how rabbit tracks ended up on the moon. Some claim a rabbit was hurled there to lessen the moon's glow. In other tales, the rabbit is the caretaker of the moon Or the rabbit is a child of the moon, who runs away and has to be returned by the sun.
22: It was from that myth that I started looking for more information on mythology. I found out about the relationship between animals and the symbolic actions that are attributed to them. It was from there that I began to develop the version closest to the book. Because it's not like the book is a representation of a single myth. Instead, it's several including
0: the myth of Lord Opossum, who was said to have ruled the earth in time before humans lived in cities. David Alvarez realized that he could use animals as metaphors to illustrate a story about human nature rooted in the legends of indigenous people. His illustrations were published first as a
8: wordless story. The plot of the book is that there is a rabbit, um, and she is the guardian of the moon. She takes care to fill it every evening with a brilliant sap from the holy agave plant.
0: That's author David Bowles, who earlier this year wrote the text for Ancient Night, giving voice to David Alvarez's story about rabbit and a possum.
8: It's a solemn task, and she's very serious about her job. She has a less serious kind of rival in the (laughs) world— who is a possum, and a possum becomes jealous. He doesn't think it's fair that rabbit should get to have complete control over what happens with that sap. And so he cracks open the moon with his his little walking stick and lets it drain out into a jug that he puts down on the earth, and then he drinks it all. The world falls into darkness.
0: David Alvarez illustrated Ancient Night with oil and acrylic. It was his first
22: time using color in his art. At first, the drafts were only in black and white, but every now and then, I felt the need to include color because, in my research, I came across a lot of Mexican paintings, especially after 1940. Diego Rivera, Rufino Tamayo, David Alfaro Siqueiros, all of that prominent school of painting. I feel like that influenced me a lot.
0: The sky is deep and dark for much of the book. The only light is the bright orb of the moon, casting beams of light on the earth below.
8: The artwork is so vivid, so bright, so one of a kind. I think it's really fascinating to see how those like deep reds and greens, the plant life, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, David has managed to, in the darkness, to keep color alive.
0: David Bowles had studied Nowatil, the language spoken by the Aztecs, and he already had experience retelling and retranslating indigenous stories when he was asked to work on this book.
8: I said yes before I actually thought about what that meant, because taking a wordless text and translating it into English means creating the text for the first time in English. You're translating uh, the intent of the author, and um, David had written up what he was trying to accomplish with every image and what the basic plot of the book was. I had translated and retold the stories separately a couple of times, but it was just ingenious. The impact that interweaving them had on me. I felt like you can imagine a version of these stories that existed before humans were telling stories back when animals spoke and, and, and ruled the world and that this is that version and that the versions we have today are just, you know, like a game of telephone. We've been retelling them again and again down the years, and they have changed.
0: In the story, Rabbit confronts Opossum. David Bowles writes, Rabbit cried out, Now no heavenly light can shine upon the earth.
8: It's at that point that Opossum realizes that his jealousy has caused real harm to other people, and he's got to come up with a solution.
0: A possum lives underground, where the gods have been preparing the other light that's going to be in the sky, the sun. He steals the sun, but it costs him the fur from the tip of his tail. Opossum and rabbit become friends from then on. They're both stewards of the light.
8: So this is a really lovely story about rivalry and jealousy and how you can repair damage that you've done. And is opening the door to young Mexican-Americans and Mexican kids about, you know, this world that both David and I as adults had to suddenly grapple with the fact that we'd been missing out on. Even though I grew up on the border with Mexico in a Mexican-American family, it wasn't until adulthood that I discovered these things. A ti de contaban estas historias, David.
22: No, la verdad es que no. No tuve mucha relación con no, not really. It did not have a relationship with mythology in my childhood. In fact, with hindsight, I feel like I was disconnected from ancient cultures. I liked them and could identify them, but I never really studied them or acquired knowledge about them and their traditions.
8: His experience, you know, of growing up in a family that even though it has indigenous heritage is disconnected from it, is one that I think a lot of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans share. So I'm thankful that to be able to work on a project like this, that opens those doors a little more. And it's lovely to think of, you know, despite conquest and colonialism and all these other things, that these stories and this language persist into the present. And it's heartening. It It gives me hope that all the good things about being human beings can endure and that goodness has endured, and we'll be okay.
0: That was author David Bowles and illustrator David Alvarez talking about their picture book, Ancient Night. Our series Picture This was produced by Samantha Balaban with translation help from Fernando Naro. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Sonn.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
7: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on nine o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues here on 90.9 WBUR. And it's almost time to cringe over teenage memories. Join us at City Space on Friday, August 25th. The Mortified podcast takes the stage featuring true stories of adolescents shared by the adults who live to tell the tale. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit. See art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 4th. ICABoston.org.
2: Awe, fascination, wonder.
20: Join us for a week of
13: stories from people who transport us to astonishing places. The word parasite evokes for me this beautiful netherworld of organisms that most people
23: are unfamiliar with, that exist just under the surface of everything that's familiar. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti On Point's Week of Wonder starts Monday at 10 on
2: 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter, Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA tisbury and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Hurricane Hillary bears down on the west. And later, a man whose family is burned out of their Oregon home three years ago and what they've learned about recovering and rebuilding. China's economic problems after decades of growth, also mortgage rates rise in the U.S. The Women's World Cup is almost done. One of baseball's biggest stars may be thrown out of the game and rap star Mick Jenkins' latest music, influenced, he says, by jazz
19: it's a big part of the way that i write that perceived randomness with direction i tell people i love to create a pattern just to break it
0: first our newscast today is saturday august 19 2023
2: live from npr news in washington i'm amy held A rare tropical storm is forecast to hit the southwestern U.S. tomorrow. People in its path are being told to prepare now for potentially catastrophic flooding. In Los Angeles, officials are setting up shelters for those experiencing homelessness and for those who may have to evacuate. Years worth of rain could fall within days on desert areas. Hurricane Hillary is threatening Mexico today. A Russian missile hit the Ukrainian city of Chernihiv today, killing at least seven people and injuring dozens. NPR's Brian Mann reports.
17: The Russian missile struck a central square in Chernihiv, a city north of Kyiv. The blast occurred near a university, heavily damaging a theater building. Ukrainian officials said one six-year-old girl died and roughly a dozen other children are among the wounded. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, on a diplomatic trip to Sweden issued a statement saying this is what it means to live next to a terrorist state. From the start of this war, Russia has regularly aimed missiles and drone attacks at civilian areas of Ukrainian cities Ukraine, meanwhile, continues the slow, grinding counteroffensive along front lines in the east and south, with officials reporting slow incremental gains. Brian Mann, NPR News, Uman, Ukraine.
2: A West African bloc says it has agreed on a day for possible military intervention in Niger after last month's coup. But as Michael Koloki reports, last-ditch diplomacy efforts are still under consideration.
10: Defence chiefs from ECOWAS member states wrapped up a two-day summit yesterday in the Ghanaian capital, Accra, Following the meeting, ECOWAS said it had agreed on a yet-to-be-disclosed day for a possible military intervention in Niger to restore the country's ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. Bazoum, together with his wife and son, are being detained in Niger's presidential palace in the country's capital, Niamey. ECOWAS said 11 countries had agreed to deploy troops to undertake the possible intervention. Niger's military junta has previously warned that there would be a swift retaliation to any armed intervention. ECOWAS, however, says it is still open for talks and might send a delegation to Niger to try and meet with the country's school leaders. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi.
2: Soaring mortgage rates are making it harder for Americans to break into the housing market and buy a home. Steve Beckner has this report.
0: The average 30-year fixed mortgage rate has risen to its highest level in 21 years, climbing to nearly percent, says Freddie Mac. That's two percentage points higher than a year ago and up eight-tenths in the past four months. The soaring cost of financing home purchases hurts affordability, as reflected in declining home sales. Although so far, home building has held up fairly well. The rise in mortgage rates follows a spike in bond yields caused by Fed rate hikes and increased Treasury borrowing. That, in turn, is causing consternation in the stock
3: market. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner.
7: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A coalition of business and neighborhood groups wants a recovery campus to be built on land owned by the MBTA to address the crime and drug use in the area known as Mass and Cass in Boston. Stephen Fox leads the coalition. He says using the vacant Wooded Circle property could help protect public health and safety while addressing the needs of people experiencing homelessness and suffering from substance abuse disorder.
15: It is one way in, one way out, so that it's a controlled access and egress location. It does not have any spillover to any of the surrounding neighborhoods,
7: The MBTA plans to use Woodhead Circle as a rail yard. Boston is moving ahead with plans to reestablish a recovery campus on Long Island once the new bridge to the Harbor Island is complete in a few years. The city of Worcester is talking with the state about opening a welcoming center for migrants. The state has two centers in Alston and Quincy to help handle the influx of migrants, putting pressure on the state's shelter system and support services. The city manager says they want short-term and long-term solutions to meet the demand in Worcester. The National Weather Service is confirming three tornadoes touched down yesterday in Massachusetts and one touchdown in Rhode Island. The three tornadoes hit Weymouth, North Attleboro, Mansfield and Stoughton. The Weymouth twister was the strongest in the state during the storm, packing winds of 100 to 110 miles per hour. National Weather Service meteorologist Bryce Williams says while the number of touchdowns is unusual for one day, it is not unheard of.
8: For instance, back in 2019, we had three tornadoes on Cape Cod. So it does happen, and we find that most people underestimate the amount of tornadoes that we get into the New England each year.
7: The strongest tornado in New England yesterday was in Rhode Island and caused damage in Johnston, Scituate, and North Providence. It is 68 degrees in Boston, with sunshine today and highs in the mid-70s. Lows tonight dropping to the low 60s, then a sunny Sunday with tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The first ever tropical storm watch is in effect for Southern California because of Hurricane Hillary, which is off Mexico's west coast and making its way up toward the Baja Peninsula. It is expected to pass into the U.S. Sunday evening as a tropical storm, and if so, will be the first since September 1939. National Weather Service says, quote, life-threatening flooding is likely, unquote. And climate science tells us that human-caused global warming can make intense storms like Hillary more common. NPR's climate reporter, Julia Simon, joins us. Julia, thanks so much for being with
6: us. Thank you, Scott.
0: I guess we cannot officially say yet this storm is the result of climate change, but we we can examine the link between humanity and severe weather, can't we?
6: Yes. And we know that humans burning fossil fuels means that the whole earth is heating up and oceans store a lot of that heat. When ocean water is extra hot, it's easier for big hurricanes to form. That hot water is sort of a fuel, an energy source for hurricanes. So it makes it more likely that an intense storm like Hurricane Hillary will form.
0: And how hot are ocean waters right now?
6: The ocean is a lot warmer than usual this summer. Forty percent of the world's oceans are experiencing heat waves right now. According to federal researchers, that's because of a natural climate pattern called El Nino and human-caused climate change. Part of the ocean that this storm formed over is around Baja, California, Mexico, in the Pacific. Temperature anomalies there are part of what's been fueling this storm, says UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain.
4: The ocean temperatures off the coast of Baja, California, are much warmer than usual right now, as much as 2 to 4 centigrade or 3 to 6 Fahrenheit. That's a pretty significant increment of additional hurricane fuel.
6: And we're likely to see intense rain in the coming days in Southern California and the Southwest region.
0: I mean, big storms do sometimes occur on the West Coast, but uh, again, this is the first time that a tropical storm watch has been issued for Southern California. Um, is is this area, and we should note, that's where you are right now. I am. Prepared.
6: Forecasters have said that the storm could dump a year's worth of rain for the Southwest over a couple of days. Los Angeles officials had a press conference yesterday about storm preparations. They said they're working to help the unhoused community that live in vulnerable places. Here's Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna.
20: Our department's personnel are also working to deploy personnel in the riverbeds to contact our unhoused population, our unhoused community, and connect them with interim housing resources.
6: Luna also noted some additional precautions for communities at risk of landslides, like an area called Palos Verdes, which was already seeing landslides this summer.
0: Julia, what should people in the path of the storm be, be looking out for right now, particularly when they're not accustomed to this kind of rainfall?
6: flooding is the number one killer in hurricanes so thing to remember don't drive into standing water turn around don't drown is the message there's a high probability of flash flooding on sunday and monday in southern california so people here should pay attention to flood alerts evacuation orders also a risk of landslide especially in places with burn scars from wildfires there's still a lot of uncertainty about the exact course of the storm, but generally make sure you have alerts set up on your phone, charge your devices, and get gas now. L.A. County officials said people can get sandbags at local fire stations. So make sure you have water, food, and are checking in with your loved ones and neighbors. Have your bags packed for your family and your pets if you need to evacuate.
0: And, Julia, if big storms are, are going to be part of of our future what advice is there that people can take to protect themselves from devastation
6: humans have agency here it's really important that as we build new infrastructure we think about the possibility of intense storms like this one that maybe have not hit before. If humans stop emitting greenhouse gases today, there still will be some warming into mid-century baked in. But by cutting climate pollution now, we can avoid worse outcomes in the future.
0: Julia Simon of NPR's Climate Desk, thanks so much. Thank you. Problems are piling up for the world's second-largest economy. China is going through faltering growth, deflation, a real estate crisis, and now record unemployment among young people, 21.3%. How will China's leadership and the Chinese people react? We're joined now by Robert Daly. He's director of the Wilson Center Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be back. Record youth unemployment. And now, China's government announced that officials will no longer make such
3: data public. What do you make of that? They will no longer publish the youth unemployment statistics, and a lot of Chinese fund managers have also been told that they shouldn't say discouraging things about the state of the economy. China is in a bigger economic funk than it has been at any time, really, since it began reform and opening in 1978. Uh, We don't know how long it's going to last, but if it lasts much longer, if it persists through another year or so, the question is, at what point does economic dissatisfaction become social and political? Let me ask
0: you first, what do you think is behind this economic slowdown?
3: There are a number of different factors. China, which has superb economists and economic planners, has known for a long time that it was going to be facing a secular or long-term slowdown in its growth as this model that the other asian countries used when they were developing slows down you know manufacture for export low wages low environmental protections that which is the foundation of china's economic miracle has essentially timed out so they've known for a long time that things were going to be slowing down what they didn't know is that they were going to hit be hit by a trade war from the united states increased diplomatic isolation covid And then a demographic crisis, which, again, they they knew about, but it came about 10 years earlier than they thought. So this is a quadruple or a quintuple whammy.
0: What's the demographic crisis?
3: The demographic crisis is that China, which we've all been accustomed to saying is the world's largest country, has not only been eclipsed by India, that itself is not the issue. The issue is that China's population is shrinking and it is getting Older. This is largely a result of China's longstanding policy of allowing Chinese families to only have one child per. You have an enormous number of now retirees and pensioners whose lives have to be supported by a shrinking number of workers. Again, the Chinese government knows about this. They've been encouraging young Chinese to have more children. They said, no more one-child policy, you'll have a two-child policy. That didn't work. They went to a three-child policy. But young Chinese are voting with their marriageability, with their fertility. They're getting married late, if at all, and having one child, if any. And so this is really the final and perhaps most serious aspect of China's long-term economic challenge.
4: Are
0: the Chinese people beginning to question the leadership of President Xi or the Chinese Communist Party? Because after all, they were happy to take credit for China's economic ascendancy.
3: There are many reasons to think that Chinese must be asking questions about the government's competence. Uh, The latter parts of the zero tolerance uh, policy for COVID that saw entire massive parts of the country shut down for months caused really a trauma that China hasn't recovered from yet. People became aware that the government's powers were absolute, could be capricious, that the government's surveillance uh, capabilities had expanded. The Chinese people saw Xi Jinping stand up with Vladimir Putin on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine and declare a no-limits partnership. Under Xi Jinping, the Chinese people have seen themselves become more isolated, not only from America and the West, but for much of the rest of the world as well. And now the economic uh, pressure is building. So it's reasonable to assume they'd be questioning the leadership. It's very hard to see that from the outside because this has gone from being an authoritarian to a nearly techno-totalitarian country. It's hard to get a grip on public sentiment.
0: Any chance of unrest? I, I mean, most any other country with this set of circumstances, you would worry about that?
3: We don't really see it yet, and the Chinese government still has means at its disposal. The markets are calling for stimulus. The government is trying this in in small increments, none of which has been sufficient yet. The way that many Chinese economists refer to this is that China has to return to reform and opening. But the hallmark of genuine reform has to be the relinquishment of power from the government to the markets. And no one in China thinks that that's going to be coming from Xi Jinping.
0: Is there something to uh, fear about a uh, economically weaker China? Our economies are so deeply intertwined after all.
3: Well, China, uh, the IMF thought, would account for 35% of global growth this year. And so if this slump deepens, it will have an impact on global growth with ripple effects around the world where China is very deeply involved. So it is now the case that you know, if China sneezes, the world catches cold. Uh, so we need to keep track of that. But the longer term geostrategic question for the United States is if China has to focus all of its attention on domestic, economic, and possibly social and political matters, does that mean that it abandons some of its international ambitions that we've been so worried about? Will China dial it back in terms of its competition with the West to shape global order? That would be good news for the United States. So there's both promise and peril in all of this for us.
0: Robert Daly of the Wilson Center, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Spain and England face off Sunday in the final game of the Women's World Cup. Ole, ole, ole. That means whatever team wins, there'll be a first-time champion later today and All Things Considered, a preview of that match. Listen for that on your radio or by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's a weekend edition from NPR News.
7: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about some different approaches to reforming gun laws, such efforts face big obstacles in Congress, so some local communities are approving their own firearms restrictions. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition here on WBUR.
6: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And DonFoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or DonFoot.com. Beauty on time.
2: I'm Amy Held. With these headlines, a rare tropical storm could drench parts of the desert southwest with years worth of rain. People in its path are being told to prepare now for potentially catastrophic flooding. Hurricane Hillary is threatening Mexico today. In Canada, firefighters are battling to save the city of Yellowknife, where most residents have fled ahead of a massive blaze, and those remaining are told their window to escape may be closing. Hundreds of wildfires are burning out of control in the country. British Columbia is is under a state of emergency. In Hawaii, the death toll from last week's wildfires has risen to 114 people. In the city of Lahaina, largely consumed by a blaze, officials are advising residents to avoid the burn areas because of hazardous materials. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Anybody scanning the real estate ads or heading out to an open house this weekend might be in for a rude awakening. This week, mortgage rates climbed to their highest level in more than two decades, and that is pricing some potential buyers out of the market and forcing others to rethink what kind of house they can afford. And Pierre Scott Horsley joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How much have mortgage rates gone up?
24: The mortgage giant Freddie Mac says the average rate on a 30-year fixed home loan this week is just over 7%. Uh, That's the highest it's been since 2002. A year ago, the average rate was just over 5%, and two years ago, it was less than 3%. What this means for a home buyer is the same monthly payment that would have bought a $400,000 house last summer will only stretch to a $325,000 house today. Uh, So that's a big adjustment for a lot of would-be buyers to wrap their heads around. Uh, Just ask realtor Lee Brown, who works with a lot of first-time buyers around Charlotte, North
5: Carolina.
6: The first thing they have to get over is this sense of regret for not having purchased while interest rates were low. There's a lot of people who man, I just should have done it a couple of years ago. And so that regret can get in the way of making good decisions. And so I have to remind buyers that what feels expensive today is probably going to feel like a bargain 10 years from now.
24: That's assuming home prices continue to climb. Uh, Brown tries to reassure clients to just keep looking at a lower price point. Maybe that'll mean settling for less house, uh, more of a fixer upper. It's also an opportunity, she says, to get more creative on the financing side. What is creative financing? I mean, how does that work? Well, maybe it means putting less money down and using some of the money you'd save for a down payment to instead buy a lower interest rate. Uh, Depending on how long you plan to stay in a house, that might make financial sense. Also, if you're buying from someone who has a VA loan, you can assume that loan, even if you weren't in the military, and that would probably carry a lower interest rate. Scott, what's pushed up mortgage rates so much? Mortgage rates tend to rise and fall with the yield on 10-year treasuries, and that yield was up this week. Uh, This is indirectly tied to the Federal Reserve's efforts to curb inflation. Uh, The bond market now thinks to do that, the Fed's going to have to leave its own interest rates higher for longer. So bondholders are demanding a higher return, and that's feeding over into mortgage rates.
0: And, And can you forecast what the overall effect of this might be on the housing market?
24: Yeah, this is going to weigh on the market. Uh, home sales are already down. Sales in June were down almost 19% from a year ago. Uh, not only are a lot of buyers sitting on the sidelines, but so are a lot of sellers. Uh, Steve Jolly, who's a realtor in Nashville, says anybody who bought or refinanced their home in the last few years probably has a really low interest rate that they don't want to give up.
8: These low interest rates are almost like golden handcuffs. People don't want to get rid of that because if they want to buy it up and buy a nicer home, What they're going to have to pay is going to be thousands of more dollars per month in mortgage.
24: So the housing market is definitely less frenzied now than it was a couple of years ago. Now, that's not all bad. Uh, Buyers and sellers have a bit more time now to catch their breath, uh, maybe get an inspection, uh, negotiate a little bit more. Uh, Fewer home sales does have ripple effects elsewhere in the economy, though. It usually means people are buying less furniture, for example, and fewer appliances as well.
0: And what are the implications for people who had intended at least to build new houses?
24: Home builders are busy right now. More people are looking at newly built houses because there are so few existing homes on the market. There are also more than a million apartments under construction right now, which is the most we've seen in decades. And as those come online, that should put downward pressure on rents, which is at least a little good news for people who are priced out of the housing market.
0: And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. And now it's time for sports. Sports. Women's World Cup, jarring allegations of a star baseball player and the race for the MLB playoffs. Some surprises. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And once again, ole, ole, ole. <laughs> Tomorrow, England faces Spain. In Sydney, the Lionesses are favored, but you can't discount the Spanish team, can you?
10: No, you can I consider that this is a a year for them when I don't think they expected this was an entire World Cup that I don't think anyone expected I think that the you you get to a point where you just assume that the United States is going to be there well the United States isn't there mm-hmm. and I think that after Sweden had beaten the the uh, the US that Sweden thought they were going to be there and then I think the Netherlands had a you know a, a chance and thought that they were going to be there so now what you've got the good the good news is you're going to get a great a great championship and I think something that that I really am looking forward to I love seeing championship rounds where someone is going to win for the first time England yeah. has never won Spain has never won you're going to get a first time champion and that creates all kinds of pressures and which creates all kinds of drama. Some shocking allegations in Major League Baseball. Wanda uh, Franco, hmm. the
0: star shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Put on the restricted list for at least six games, authorities in the Dominican Republic are investigating him for an alleged relationship with a minor. There's some reports he might not be allowed to play in the major leagues ever again. What does this look like to you, Howard? Well,
10: I think this is it's obviously it's a devastating story for everybody involved. Um, the allegations are incredibly serious. I think the Major League Baseball is taking its lead from the Dominican authorities. I think baseball is the last thing that anyone is considering when it comes to Wander to Franco. We've seen the restricted list uh, in the case before with Trevor Bauer with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he ended up not playing and he has not returned in Major League Baseball. He's playing overseas, and, and I think that this is going to be one of those One of those stories where the legal system is going to dictate Major League Baseball is not going to push any of this. It's going to be, uh, uh, it's a really sad story. I don't don't think anyone's going to be thinking about Wanda Franco playing baseball this season and even going beyond that. There are
0: 6 weeks to go until baseball's playoffs begin. I am going to tee up a few names for you, the Atlanta Braves, the Baltimore Orioles, and <laughs> against all expectation, yes, 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 the uh, what do they call them?
10: Chicago Cubs. Oh, goodness. You know, I'll tell you Scott, this is this is what we've been waiting for and then baseball has always been filled with Bad news. We always talk about the th- as we just were talking about so many things that aren't going right in the sport. We talked about the beginning of the season with all the new rules and what was going to happen. And but now we're hitting September, and this is where baseball fans find out who are the contenders, who are the pretenders, who was who's built for a hundred games, and who's built for the whole thing. I'm surprised by the Cubs. They're in contention. They weren't supposed to be. The yeah. Baltimore Orioles are at the top of the American League East. They're a really good team. They haven't. Won the World Series since 1983. They haven't been to the World Series since 1983. The Red Sox and the Yankees are at the bottom of the American League. <laughs> they're playing <laughs> each other in New York this week, and we haven't seen these two be this low in the standings since 1992. Wow! And so there's a lot happening. It's great. You've got Dusty Baker, and uh, with the defending World Champions, uh, Houston Astros, and they're up against Bruce Bochy, and he's back after winning three World Series with uh, with the giants he's with texas right now they're slugging it out in the american league west a lot of good stuff happening it's going to be a great great postseason i think and, and not only that a great september great pennant race yeah. and and the team to beat right now is the atlanta braves they're the one to watch yep howard brad of MetroLark media thanks so much my pleasure scott
0: What does it mean for a person or a community like Maui to come back from a fire? Tragically, it's a question faced by more people in more places in recent years. And we look at one this morning in Southern Oregon. The Almeda Fire, driven by heat, drought and fierce winds, tore through towns there just after Labor Day weekend 2020. Over 2,600 homes burned, including one belonging to Tony and Terry Chavez in Phoenix, Oregon. Tony Chavez joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us.
16: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having
0: me. I understand and apologize for the fact that we're asking you to um, to go back on what must be some painful memories. What was it like in that moment you realized that your home was lost? Um, We left when we saw the fires in the
16: backyard and, and got out of town and regrouped with some other friends in, a, in another part of town and for a while we didn't know. We just, we literally just sat on the curb for about an hour and I, I actually got a text from um, one of my other friends in town with a picture of our house on fire um, and, and it's, it's a Pretty numb moment when you see that, um, you know everything races through your head. What's gone? What could you have done? It's, um, yeah. There's there's no real way to prepare for it.
0: Mm-hmm. May I ask what raced through your mind when you saw and heard the news about Maui? Oh,
16: it was a definite trigger. You you instantly go back to, to our day of the fire, and you don't wish that on anybody.
17: Yeah.
16: Um,
0: and you know they're in for a long road ahead of them, and we know that. What What have you learned about the road back? How easy or hard was it to get the help that you needed?
16: That was, uh, that was one of the harder parts, if that makes any sense what really compounded it was there was a third of our town was lost, but two thirds was still standing. And, you know, authorities, I I don't know if they were trying to get control of the situation, locked everybody out of town. So a couple of us, you know, got together and we were taking inventory of what people needed who wouldn't leave town. And we were handing supplies over, over barricades, you know, uh it added to the trauma how hard was it for you to rebuild um we couldn't have done anything without our group of of friends and family you know we had an architect and a builder step in to help us we had it pretty easy that way as far as resources, you know, we built most of our house ourselves because we didn't have enough money. We didn't have enough insurance coverage because we didn't we didn't keep up to date on our insurance policy. We didn't meet with our agent once a year like you're supposed to. So that was our shortfall. But one of the biggest tragedies about the rebuild was materials shot up 300%.
0: Was that because of demand, do you think, or...?
16: You know, I think it was what the market will bear. People needed materials.
0: What do, um, what you've gone through, in your family and in your community, made you realize something about your community?
16: Almost immediately, the day after the fire, our community instantaneously came together, and it didn't matter what flag you had in your front yard or what bumper sticker you had on the back of your car truck. It was just people helping people. Our citizens and our community were the biggest resource we had. And and from what I understand, you know, Hawaii is even a tighter commit, knit community. And I think their community is going to be their biggest resource. The agencies need to work with those those communities.
0: On the chance that people in Maui might be listening to our conversation today, anything you'd like to tell them? Um, we know what
16: you're going through. It 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 does get better. Just neighbor look to neighbor. Um.
0: That that's it's the best thing I can say. Tony Chavez uh, lives in Phoenix, Oregon, with his wife, Terry. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for, for reaching out. to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Passing gun laws on the national level is incredibly difficult and highly politicized, so some local communities are taking it upon themselves. From Member Station WHYY in Philadelphia, Emily Rizzo looks at one Philadelphia suburb, looking at what kinds of local gun restrictions are possible.
13: SHOT Tech is the only commercial firearms business in Lower Marion Township. It sits in a mostly residential area, in a leafy suburb. Customers can order guns online, semi-automatic rifles, pistols, ammunition, pretty much anything a gun owner would need, and they pick up those orders at the storefront. But because those guns aren't sold there, owner Grant Schmidt says technically it's not a gun shop. In fact, he offers gun safety classes.
9: And we've used advanced simulation technology to teach people how to shoot and defend themselves.
13: Schmidt greets a UPS delivery, a customer's order.
9: It's going to open that box. Inside's going to be a box, probably with a firearm. We're going to contact that customer.
13: When ShotTech opened, neighbors worried because these guns were close to homes, close to schools. They organized a push for new gun sale regulations. Now, Lower Marion has limited gun businesses to only certain commercial, mostly non residential areas, and not inside homes. It's risky because Pennsylvania has a law called the preemption statute, which says that towns can't pass stricter gun laws than the state. But this
22: regulation yes.
13: passed unanimously Aye. in Mr. April. Sina. Yes. The ordinance is duly adopted.
22: Thank you, Madam Secretary. I look forward, if it comes to that, to defending this and defending our right as a municipality to have self-determination in this state.
13: Schmidt and a Pennsylvania PAC that advocates for gun owners is now challenging the ordinance in court.
9: What the township did is they made it less accessible for people to access their rights and for people to access things like gunsmithing and etc.
13: Township Commissioner Mike McKeon says he feels the regulation will survive a legal challenge because it's a zoning law. Before this, gun stores could open anywhere in Lower Marion, which is one of Pennsylvania's largest municipalities.
5: So when you have that kind of size, we have the ability to try to uh, zone it and put firearms in certain districts and not in others.
13: They can't say for sure that it will reduce gun violence, But they believe it's a start.
5: But what we can guarantee is we're trying to make everyone feel safer.
13: But Grant Schmidt argues safety doesn't come from limiting businesses or guns. For him, the solution entails armed security at gathering places like schools. There's a
9: variety of ways to do that, and that's where the discussion
13: should be. Schmidt's business, ShotTech, is just a few blocks away from the home of Joe Oxman, who helped fight for the new ordinance. Oxman wants to make it harder for new gun stores to open. Gun violence isn't rampant in this area, but he's thinking of neighboring Philadelphia. The
24: last thing I would ever want to hear is that a death was caused in Philadelphia from the sale of a gun in Lower Marion Township.
13: He says maybe it's symbolic, but it's more than the usual thoughts and prayers politicians often say.
24: We're not going to change the world here but at least we're showing what this township is about.
13: The final word is expected to be settled in county court. A hearing on the lawsuit is expected to be scheduled in the coming months. For NPR News, I'm Emily Rizzo in Philadelphia.
0: This is NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A coalition of business and neighborhood groups is calling for the construction of a recovery campus on land owned by the MBTA to address the crime and drug use in the area known as Mass and Cass in Boston. The coalition says using the vacant Widdett Circle property could help protect public health and safety while addressing the needs of people experiencing homelessness and suffering from substance abuse disorder, The MBTA plans to use Wadette Circle as a rail yard. The guns of the USS Constitution fire at noon today. The seven-gun salute will commemorate old Ironside's battle with a British frigate. The victory by the overmatched Constitution was considered a stunning win during the War of 1812. Alston Christmas is not quite two weeks away. That's the August 31st, September 1st compendium of household items strewn all over sidewalks and free for the taking during the massive rental turnovers as college students arrive and leave. But today, it is a different sort of celebration in the neighborhood. Alston gets its first Open Streets event. The city of Boston closes Harvard Ave and Brighton Ave to vehicular traffic and offers a festival of performances, activities, and vendors. The event gets underway at 10 a.m.
11: This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing the classic musical Camelot, the love triangle of King Arthur, Guinevere, and Sir Lancelot. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com.
20: On this week's Wait, Wait, Cindy Lauper tells us about a mild disagreement she once had with a friend.
1: I turned over the table...
25: And I pulled on his beard and hit him with my purse
20: over the head. I'm Peter Sagal. We promise no harm will come to you from this week's news quiz. Also with Brian May from Queen, dancer Misty Copeland, and the geniuses behind Southside. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Bats have been in decline across the country for years. Some reasons include habitat loss and disease, but for scientists to understand these threats, they have to track a flying, nocturnal animal they can't really see or hear, unlike B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music. So they get help from special technology and many volunteers. Nikolai Mather with member station WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina, recently went on a midnight quest for
23: bats. It's a balmy summer night. I'm on a country road on the border of North and South Carolina with Jen Gore and Jen Huffam. They have their hazard lights on and they're taking me for a very slow drive. Why do we have to go 20 miles per hour? For it to pick up, I, I assume, if we're going faster, maybe the wind will. Be too much. Oh, see. Have a great day. <laughs> going this slow on a two-lane road means you'll hear a lot of angry honks. But Gore and Huffam have to drive slow in order to collect bat calls. They're volunteers for the North American Bat Monitoring Program, or NA Bat for short. Gore and Huffam taped a special microphone to the roof of their Toyota. That way, they can figure out which bats are flying overhead. Eastern red bat. Yeah, we're going to get some more through here. They pick up their first sound. Bats use high-pitched noises to hunt. It's called echolocation. Oh, it. The sound bounces off of obstacles in their path, which allows them to kind of see in the dark. The noises are too high for humans to hear, which is why our volunteers use the microphone. The sound waves show up on an iPad that Huffam is holding. It's connected to the microphone. A special app can identify the species. Oh, southeastern myotis. Oh, we didn't get that one before. Already two bats in the can for these volunteers and there are 17 species in North Carolina. We can also use technology to make the bat calls audible for the human ear. It sounds a little weird, but here it is. Every summer, thousands of citizen scientists across North America go on these excursions. They collect these bat calls in the field to share with researchers. How visible is the moon? It was like halfway visible. Huffam is checking the weather conditions. Volunteers have to record the temperature, the cloud coverage, and other environmental data for each run. It
11: was like cloudy but not covering it really.
23: We reach the end of the route. Gore turns off her hazard lights and drives us back to the gas station where we met. Every volunteer in every region follows the exact same procedure. Scientists need standardized data for their analyses to be accurate. They take their job seriously, Huffam tells me, because they know this work matters. The data we collect helps us to look at what species are doing well, what species need our help, and what ecosystems are good for not just bats, but other wildlife as well. And in just half an hour, we recorded 11 different bat species. For NPR News, I'm Nikolai Mather in Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs>
0: Walter Mercado enchanted viewers with his astrological readings and flamboyant capes for decades on Spanish language television.
3: Leo, tu eres el rey absoluto del zodiaco, rey de corazones.
0: Walter Mercado died in 2019, but his memory lives on in the hearts of his fans and in a Puerto Rican shopping mall. Writer Edgar Gomez came across a trove of Walter Mercado's clothes and accessories there this summer, including capes, perfumes, brooches, and so much more. They kept going back and wrote about it in Delos in the Los Angeles Times. Edgar
15: Gomez joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here to talk about Walter Mercado. Well, first, how did all this uh, this treasure trove
0: wind up at a mall in Puerto
15: Rico? So, I can tell you about the shop and the shopkeeper um, who I spoke to on one of my visits. His name is Tony Taffinelli. and he used to actually be Walted's fish tank cleaner. And while doing that, he became good friends with the family, especially Walted's nieces, who after Walted passed away, they were left to handle his estate. And because they knew Tony had this antique shop at the mall, they were like, oh, will you help us sell some of these items? What's in this treasure trove? The first time I went into the shop, it felt like I was breaking into Wanted's bedroom or something. It felt like an invasion of privacy almost, because it literally had a bunch of his clothes, again, rings, his spiritual texts, perfume still in their plastic wrapping. It felt very personal and intimate, which is really what drew me to it and what I appreciated about being there because it felt like an immersive experience. Well, help us understand what Walter Mercado meant growing up to you and to so many others, for that matter. I was introduced to him in the 90s when he was on this daily news program called Primer Impacto. And it's this really dramatic news show where they basically highlight the most shocking sensational stories from all over the world and pretty much after like 20 minutes of watching the show you like do not want to leave your house cuz it <laughs> puts like the fear of the world in you
16: yeah
15: but then walter would come on he had an astrology segment and he would be sitting on a gilded throne And there'd be smoke machines going behind him. And he'd have, like, gold rings on all of his fingers. And he'd wave them in the air to hypnotize you. And it was like a relief from all of the bleak news that you just saw. He would tell you that you were special, that you mattered. And he would just make you feel important. And so I think a lot of Latinx people really like needed to hear that. On a personal level, I knew that there was something different about me. And I recognized that difference in Walter. The show would come on and my grandma would be watching Walter on TV and I would be watching her sort of like okay, I guess she's cool with a man and like makeup and jewels and all this. Maybe that means that I can do that. Maybe that means she's going to be cool with me. And so on a personal level, he sort of served as a a stand-in for my queerness. Yeah. I gather you ended up buying a brooch? On one of my last visits, the shopkeeper approached me and we just got to talking and he was like, do you want to touch any of these things that are behind the glass? I was like, yes, I want to see this brooch that I'd had my eye on for a while. It is this, this ruby brooch and it's uh, in the shape of a flower. And he let me see it, and I held it. And I just got goosebumps. He ended up selling it to me at a discount. I got it for $40. And now it's just like a little bit of water that I can carry around with me.
0: Have your eye on anything else?
15: I mean, my fantasy is to have a cape. I'm gradually saving up for that. Hopefully after this comes out, people don't rush and buy all of the capes, or at least Save me one. I hope
0: you get the cape you really
15: want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, One day I'm I'm saving up. (laughs) Or I might just like sneak in that night and steal it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Edgar Gomez, uh, author of the book High Risk Homosexual. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mucho, mucho, mucho. Mucho. Amor. Mick Jenkins has been thinking a lot about how he makes music. In his latest album, The Patience, the rapper says he's finally come into his own.
25: Hey, knock, but I didn't get by my lonely up. I gotta burn one for the that
0: Mick Jenkins joins us now from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us.
19: Thank you for having me.
0: You grew up in Chicago. And in Huntsville, Alabama. What do you think you uh, you learned from each place?
19: Yeah, quite the dichotomy. I was born in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, I was there until my parents separated and started their divorce. I think I was around seven years old. Mm-hmm. I remember coming to Chicago on a Greyhound bus and just seeing it was the immensity of the city immediately, yeah. the buildings, Reaching up to the sky, all of that was something that I had never really experienced before, especially coming from a much slower city, where I think our biggest building at the time was a hotel. (laughs) was the Embassy Suites, so very different experience. Very early, my mother encouraged me to like explore the city on a train. And so, probably one of the biggest things that I learned that, that I probably still carry with me today, as far as how I move throughout the world.
0: Yeah, you took the L?
19: Yes, yeah, that was one of the first things I had to learn if I was going to be able to get around the city I'm on my own, The L in the bus.
0: We'll explain that, uh, well, you rode the L as a youngster and a teenager. You're in the car now because you live in Los Angeles, so we're going to, we might hear some of the traffic noise. I have read that you discovered spoken word poetry in high school, and uh, this kind of set you off. What kind of connection did poetry make with
19: Well, my mother had always encouraged writing. She was heavy into journalism. I think she had an advertising job early on before she moved to Chicago. Mm -hmm. All I remember mostly is that she was a stickler for our writing in school. And so creative writing and all types of writing I was always interested in. I found poetry through Deaf Poetry Jam on YouTube. Hours and hours of watching that footage and it connected to me as a writer just because that was something already that I was, you know, through my mother's instruction, becoming well-versed in and I didn't have to write an entire essay to try to get a point across. I could be as funny or as flippant or as direct as I wanted to be. And I think that was very interesting to me. I often let people know that the the transition from poetry to full-on rapping was actually very subtle for me because of the people that I was around. It started with a group of guys that were in a poetry group that I was in called Art & Soul. A few of them rapped. And just being next to them and sharpening my pencil next to theirs is where I, you know, decided to write my first rap. And it, it didn't seem like such a transition for me. It just seemed like, well, this is what my other poet friends are doing. I'm, a, I'm going to try this form as well.
0: By the way, that's a great phrase, sharpening my pencil next to theirs.
19: Yeah, iron sharpens iron. In that case, graphite, graphite. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let me ask you about, uh, for example, this song. 007.
25: Follow me, I got moose tracks. The right two cents is worth two racks. I talked that old jazz, I lied, Dave brew back. Push keys so dope, made you sweat. See notes so sweet, under flames, made brulette. Who let the dogs out? Watch this get main to death. Who left? We finna go all out. I beat the ball, gave new breath with pump action. Dodge the hate with the same two step.
0: Do I hear a little jazz influence in there in addition to everything else?
19: Absolutely. Uh, Shout out Dave Brubeck, you know. (laughs) Um, It's where I started. We used a lot of jazz influence when I made the Waters, and that has continued throughout my career. Why wouldn't it, you know? I think it's a great genre to experiment in naturally with some of the instrumentalists that we've had on on the album. And it's definitely a great genre to sample and find inspiration from that way, which is something that we do. You heard the horn in the background. The more that I get turned on to, the more that I'm inspired. And I think it's a big part of the attitude in my music as well. It's a big part of the way that I write, that perceived randomness with direction and splashes of things, that accent, I think that's a, it's, it's a definitely a way that I like to write as well. I tell people I love to create a pattern just to break it. And I think that is very much within the soul of jazz. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel freer now than you did in some of your earlier recordings?
19: Absolutely. I was disgruntled in my situation for good reasons and it affected my ability to do my best as an artist. You know, I think as an artist, we create from an emotional place. Um, Our connection to our art is emotional. A lot of the themes that I push and messages that I'm trying to get across are bigger than me in my eyes. And being in a situation where I'm uncomfortable, it's gonna affect how I create. And it did. And anything that I could lump in that category is no longer what I'm dealing with. And it gives you a great breath of fresh air. And it gives me the space to be like, okay, now I can focus on exactly what I wanna focus on.
0: Let me ask you about um... Smoke breakdowns.
25: And I keep rolling up. We blow it down. We blowing up. High air, Emmy, we going up. Still is no feet going up. Fees going up. We pulling up. We throwing up gang signs. Trees going up and flames find us a force fire every smoke break. We opened up. We space. We gave our hang time. We trying to reclaim time. We finna rebuild no home. People with us. People with us. That come from the face time. Low key like the baseline got smoke. And I keep rolling up. What's the story of this song?
19: i'm a smoker i'm an avid smoker i'm in a wee legal city so i i enjoy myself I, i heard a smoking song but i said to myself not another smoking song not another one right and so i then began to explore all right well what can i do to pull out a theme here right and i think it can be harmless and it can seem harmless but when you really start to examine why this is something that you continue to do you might notice that you do have addictive behavior. And so in the video, we're actually not talking about smoking too much. We're talking about how young men can have ideas reinforced through their manhood that are destructive uh, to themselves and people around them. But these are things that reinforce ideas of violence and how to handle conflict that aren't the best. Just like smoking, the negative effects of that habit usually aren't seen until later much later it starts with that what i say on the course that i keep rolling up i keep i keep i keep rolling up and that's how i try to attack the message of that song but on the surface it, it you know it's it sounds like another smoking song
0: <laughs> boy but it's a lot more than that isn't it
19: absolutely i love doing that i love having a thing for you to unpack having something for you to listen to over and over and notice something on the 37th time that you didn't notice on the third wow
0: mick jenkins his fourth album the patience is uh, is out now thank you so much for being with us
19: oh thank you for having me i appreciate it and i keep rolling up
25: we blow it down we blowing up high air Emmy. we going up still is no feet going up. Fees going up. We pulling up. We throwing up gang signs. Trees going up and flames find us a force fire every smoke
0: break. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Sine.
25: We trying to reclaim time. We finna rebuild no home. People with us. People with us. That come from the FaceTime. Low key like the baseline. Got smoke and I keep pulling up.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimmsfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation,
7: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, here on 90.9 WBUR. Wherever the summer takes you, at the beach or in the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. It's 68 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian
11: artist Geo Swaybe. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org.
13: Leaf blowers, sirens, jackhammers. The din of daily life can be more than just annoying. Research shows that noise pollution can have negative impacts on our health.
1: This can cause things like heart disease, high blood pressure,
13: anxiety, depression. A look into the problem of noise pollution and efforts to reduce it on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
14: Today at 5 on 90.9
22: WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.